0: Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And I'm so pleased to have my friend Spencer Clavin back on the show. And for a very, very good reason for round two, um, we're going to be talking about his new book, How to Save the West, Ancient Wis- Wisdom for Five Modern Crises, which you can get on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. I don't know, Spencer, if there are some un-big um, un tech ways to, to access your book.
1: <laughs> oh, that's a good question. I guess you get it straight out of the Regnery website that might be the like purest the most uh, what is it called uh, ethically sourced way to get my <laughs> my book
0: <laughs> ethically sourced wisdom by Spencer <laughs> yeah, um Spencer also is going to be launching a new version of his wildly popular podcast, Young Heretics, where he discusses the heritage of the West and translates it much in, the, in a similar way as he has done um, in this very well organized book. Um, I'm always—I I know uh, Emily Dushinsky said the same thing. I'm going to echo her here. I—I I, I love a good organizational structure, you know—to <laughs> uh, really to get into some of the the really dense and important, and some might say the most important questions that you are. Um, digging into in this book. Um, Now, before we get in, there's five different crises that you kind of situate in the modern world. Of course, there are an almost infinite series of crises human beings can create for themselves. But these five (laughs) questions you say, um, both have plagued civilizations in the past, they've plagued our forefathers in the West, um, and they plague us now in different ways. But the implication there, of course, is that we are in crisis. Mm-hmm. um or rather in a series of sort of fundamental crises um so why do you think that we actually are in crisis and one of the things you point to in in this is that being in crisis is not a unique thing and in fact the west has been in sort of a series of crises in in its own very long um history right uh going all the way back to the ancient greeks so the the, the question is why are we in crisis now? Um, and how do we balance between which I see you doing a lot in this book? How do we balance between the the sort of wisdom of of the ages giving us a little bit of comfort uh, mm. that this is not novel, and also not being complacent about the reality of the crises that face us?
1: Right. Okay. Well, that's really nicely framed. Thank you, and thank you for the kind words. Uh, About the book. The way to start here, I think, because you're absolutely right, we're capable of generating no (laughs) end of trouble for ourselves. There's really no end of of crises if we look for them. And the word crisis is all over the news all the time. Every day, it feels like you wake up, there's a crisis in the supply chain, there's a crisis. I mean, it's one of the most overused words, you might say, in our media discourse. And so it's worth probably at the outset defining what I mean by that word um in in greek the verb krino means i judge or i make a decision and so more than just something that is really bad or that might cause us to panic or you know whatever else we might mean by by crisis a crisis in this sort of foundational sense is a time for choosing it's a point where you have to make a decision between two fundamentally irreconcilable ways of looking at the world ways of doing things or or what have you and At that level, I mean, these kind of philosophical crises that I'm addressing in the book, things like what is a human being, you know, what. what is our place in the universe? Um, the reason that we're up against those right now, I argue in the book is because of the way our technology is changing and because of the way we seem to be entering into kind of a new phase of just our relationship to one another and to the universe and to ourselves and all of that. Um, and so all of these kind of small sea crises, if you like, that we're seeing on the news all the time, I'm arguing these are really kind of like Tremors, or the tip of the iceberg, or whatever you metaphor you want to use for the deeper big sea crises that we're up against, that are very fundamental foundation level questions. And there's actually something really comforting to me in that. To start addressing your second question, which is, if these are crises that have been around forever, as if they're kind of baked in, if you like, to the human condition, then they're not actually, we're not actually alone. I mean, easily, it's very easy to feel at this stage in our history as if like everything is unprecedented. all this technology that the, you know, trans extremism, you pick whatever you like. It all seems to have come out of left field suddenly overnight and there's no precedent for it. Um, But actually, if you understand them as kind of outward signs of something deeper and older, um, then we have a much richer tradition to to draw from, we have this long history of uh, discussion and debate in the West, Athens and Jerusalem, the you know the two great pillars of our civilization, Greek and Roman philosophy, uh, Jewish and Christian scripture. These things kind of come together to offer us a lot of very helpful and I think sane, clarifying answers to some of these foundational questions, like the first one: the crisis of reality. Is there such a thing as as absolutely true or or and false or or not? And so. You know, that does kind of lead us into this, well, are we just sort of going to sit back and relax and feel okay, that everything is always going to be fine because this is perennial, Um, or are we going to light our hair on fire and say... The very foundations of our civilization are uh, unsettled and forces beyond our control are working to crush us under the wheel of history. I mean, to me, both of those attitudes are very unhelpful and also very easy to slip into the kind of extreme despair of pessimism and the extreme complacency of optimism. Um, What I'm basically proposing in this book is that both optimism and pessimism are predictions about the future, about whether you think what's going to happen is going to be good or bad. And one thing that the history of the West teaches us is you genuinely don't know what's going to happen in the future, Um, but you do know that hope is always a worthwhile thing because hope is something that doesn't actually depend on, you know, oh, I think things are going to turn out well tomorrow. It depends on reaching back into precisely this long tradition that we understand ourselves to be a part of, reaching into the wisdom of the past, asking how we might embody it in the here and now, and trusting that in the long view of history, that effort will not be poorly spent. It will be well spent. In fact, the best thing that we can do, and the only thing really that we can do, whether things go well or or badly, our job is basically the same, and that's to, to carry this light.
0: Um, well, well, that's a, a good place to start. You mentioned the first crisis you deal with, the crisis of reality, right? Yeah. Um, and you have this great phrase in here uh, about intuitions, um, our intuition that, quote, there is an outside and there is a real. Uh, and you you compare it to the matrix, right? Where um, there is the sense that uh, we know that all these, once we know that all these people are, are, um, you know, plugged into a machine and feeding the machine and and all of the sensations that they're experiencing in their life um, are false. There's a sense of like dystopian horror Hmm. about it. Um, Do you think all people have that intuition um, and, and this seems, as you say, the crisis precipitated by technology, where it becomes more and more possible for us to imagine not only something as uh, you know technologically still for us out of reach as actually uh, good plastic surgery to change sexes, quote unquote. <laughs> um, but, but you know we can easily imagine popping off arms and legs, melding with the metaverse, right having a, a digital life that is more real or seems more real than uh, reality itself. Do all people have this intuition or this is something I wonder about a lot? Is, is it a personality trait to feel yeah. at this idea? And or do you have to have a sense of the real and the joy of real life? And if you're deprived of that from a young age, like, say, the kids in, in who grew up during this pandemic and for, you know, already trending towards the digital seeming more real you know, they don't have friends. They don't, you know, they're not interacting with a lot of actual live human beings. I mean, is this an intuition or is this just like generational or, or could could we imagine a humanity without it? I'm sorry. That's a lot of questions, but
1: uh, yeah, I actually really, I really question. It's sort of like, is, is this like the taste for cilantro, right? Yeah. Like most people really like cilantro. It's a great garnish. And apparently for a select number of people, it just sort of tastes like soap. And you're basically asking, is the felt sense of an absolute truth, is that like cilantro? Like some people are born kind of deaf and dumb to it, or even worse, and this is a possibility I do raise in the book, could you be trained out of it? Could a whole generation be basically raised to distrust or not even to feel the affection that I have and you have for the kind of homely local reality of our being in space and time just having bodies and getting up in the morning and like seeing the sun and eating food and uh, sensing that these things are even if they're not exactly as we perceive them all the time nevertheless worth you know connecting with as as believing in a, a real and that they exist outside of us and these sorts of things um and wh- one way into this that i take in the reality crisis action is you start with the you know facebook announcement that uh Zuckerberg said, you know, we're turning this into meta, and now you're going to be able to engage with your friends, not simply through a screen, but through goggles that make it look as if the world around you is basically whatever you collectively decide it's going to be. And leaving aside for a second, this particular technology, because it's not really about Facebook meta, it's more about an attitude toward the world. That attitude that it would be kind of good to dissolve the boundaries of true and false, is, as you say, typically expressed in dystopian fiction i mean the matrix um even something like wally ready player one um the term metaphors itself comes from this novel snow crash which is certainly not a happy prognosis about the future of the world you know it all basically boils down in these stories to either reality has gotten so dreadful that we have to escape into this virtual world um, or reality itself has been commandeered by powerful people who have interests of their own and so they've forced us into this virtual reality world. And one thing I suggest here is that when the stories of a culture repeatedly present a certain view of something like that you know, absolving or dissolving into virtual reality, it, it, that view that this is kind of bad or or scary and kind of gross to do. Um that's not an accident. It's actually expressing something that goes deeper than just your preference or or mine. I mean, uh, I think it was Jung who said that m- myths are public dreams, and this is kind of what I mean when I say that you know when we tell the same There's kind of story a public again, nightmare,
0: a recurring public nightmare.
1: Exactly. Yes. Right. The virtual reality, and it and it gets even more profound when you sort of contemplate the fact that the first ever virtual reality dystopia is actually Plato's cave, right? That um in book 7 of the Republic famously Plato Socrates embarks upon this image, this famous image of people shackled to the wall of a cave and all they can see is the shadows projected on the wall by sophists and politicians and deceptive kind of, you know, no good nicks. Um and Plato's contention is we're basically born into this condition, and all of philosophy simply involves trying desperately to find our way out to, to see the true light of, of the sun outside. Um, And, and so <laughs> what this suggests, I think, is that it is possible to educate people, to train this, to drill this out of people. And some of what you are very often, I think you're really good at pointing this out and insisting upon this to conservatives, that the new generation is being subjected to some of this and it's going to have real consequences. Um, Plato begins, introduces this uh, image of the cave by saying, compare our education and our state in respect to education to this situation. So he's basically saying this is a matter of training to a certain extent, but he's also saying that it's not purely arbitrary whether you're looking at the shadows or whether you're looking at the sun that they have a different qualitative kind of feel to them and the human apparatus is such that even if it's been drilled out of you you do have a kind of felt sense of of deeper reality when you see it and i think that is probably a true enough thing about human nature that it's it's not totally extinguishable i mean this is like you know if if the world soviet state ever came into being would it truly be able to eclipse all light from outside its borders a la 1984 um or would there always be this kind of just irreducible human spark of feeling like no other people are real uh truth and falsehood are not just what the parties say they are. Um, my sense is that the, the reason for accumulating all this evidence at all is to say that that still exists and can still be appealed to even in a very degraded age. But it's certainly hard and you're not wrong to worry about generations that have been kind of trained out of this.
0: Yeah, so that leads us to um, the second of your... And, and these, these blend into each other, um, I think, because... And I can, I can almost feel in the book how, for example, you're trying to keep certain questions of theology separated out. But the, the, the question of reality is, of course, related also to the evidence of our senses and and being embodied. Um, mm-hmm. And, and uh, so in both of these questions, I, I guess I want to ask you what the role of suffering is is in this because you said there are two ways we sort of enter the metaverse in this collective nightmare. Um, and and one is by being forced in because there are other interests, right? In the matrix, the machines need our, they, they dominated us and they needed our, <laughs> our, our and green. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. But, but the other one more realistically seemingly um, for our current moment is that real life becomes so unbearable that it becomes very difficult to defend. In other words, that reality is difficult to defend because it causes us so much suffering. Um, I think at some point you bring up in, in this book the idea that that people reject, and maybe you're mm. quoting someone else. I can't recall, but like that that uh, um, people reject too much reality.
1: Right? Yes, uh, this is Eliot, T.S. Eliot. Mankind cannot stand very much reality. Right. Exactly.
0: Right. So, um, how do we defend? reality uh in in the face of suffering i guess think of the the matrix guy who says i just want a really nice steak you know i don't want to know about the stakes of this war i don't want to live outside the matrix i just want to be rich and have a delicious steak every day and if that's in the matrix so be it
1: yeah well i mean this is kind of the hardest sell i think i think it's why the book begins here if i had to say you know why did you begin with reality it's because this is really the first most fundamental question and it's also it's it's the most it's the one where it's most easy to sympathize with people that just want out with that guy that just wants the stake um what i'm arguing in the book is that reality of the kind that involves suffering um that kind of reality and meaning are inextricably bound to one another. You you can't have meaning without at least the possibility that things can go badly. Um, And so there are always, I think, going to be some people that would rather just not take that deal and that you don't need digital technology to make that clear because things like you know opium addiction exist right there's it's always possible to find somebody that says you know I would I would rather have a sort of cloud of unknowing descend about me than simply suffer through the pains the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune but it's also the case that we can always see and already again before digital technology we can see that there is always an, a way in which we are made weak and small by that exchange. And from the inside of that opium addiction or virtual reality, you know, fantasy or or whatever, from the inside, it might be possible to construct a justification for yourself that this is better. At least I don't have to suffer. But even, you know, those of us that have seen addiction, lived with addiction, even been through addiction, will know that there's also a voice in the back of your head that says this is a this is a raw deal. It's not actually worth the cost. And there's a dynamic that I identify in the book that, you know, when these offers are made, these offers to kind of eliminate suffering, to transcend suffering uh, by abolishing reality, The structure of the offer is always, here's this thing that we're doing now that's making us sort of sick and lethargic and unhappy. But if we extend that thing to infinity, we'll be blissful that will make us happier than we could ever possibly imagine so if you you know it, it's just <laughs> happiness is at the bottom of one more beer glass or it's in one more heroin needle or it's in one more like surgery or it'll be you know rendered once we finally have the right detail in our virtual reality goggles and and the reason that that deal never materializes is because actually And this is the great Christian insight, I would argue, and Jewish also. Um, Actually, our suffering is essential to the nature of our being as meaningful human entities. It's it's not that anybody would... would want suffering or would wish suffering on other people um but it it is fundamentally redemptive you know so suffering has this redemptive character if you believe uh that it it comes along with significance consequence that you have meaning and worth precisely because your actions uh can have good or bad consequences i mean those th- those two things are are bound up together and so if you ever actually were able to dissolve those boundaries of reality what you would get would actually not be joy but just a kind of diffuse emptiness just a kind of uh anesthesia and that's really what you see people actually getting out of this deal you can see people getting sadder and more lethargic and kind of staying at home and playing video games for hours on end and like that stuff you know it might have a certain pleasant numbness about it but I think that actually people are increasingly aware that it's it it really doesn't sell. It, it doesn't actually work. I mean, even the metaverse is not doing well for Zuckerberg for for Facebook, precisely because we we crave more than just uh, n- not suffering. Right? We we crave actual significance, consequence, heroism, and all these things take place in the world of reality and and suffering. And you have to ultimately say to people, look, you know, you can. You can feel good all the time, or you can feel, I guess, not bad all the time if you want. Uh, and, and that will degrade you and make you small. And, and uh, you know, you'll, you'll basically kind of flop around meaninglessly in your little apartment. Or you can have a life of adventure, heroism, joy, love, and all these things will come at the cost of free will and, and suffering. And that's the ancient trade-off.
0: Um, so to move into this next crisis of the body... Which I think is, is, again, is related to what we're talking about in mean, one of the most uh, unavoidable mm. sufferings of the human condition, right, is, is uh, the, the de- degradation of the body, right, that, that um, we, we feel that there's, we have a consciousness and yet, you know, our bodies are decay. our our bodies are going we know we're conscious of mortal mortality we're conscious of becoming you know undignified and disgusting as as would would Hmm. put it right um and we're conscious of that fact but we have a very bizarre and I think you describe it if if you didn't I'm going to schizophrenic Mm -hmm. way a relationship to our bodies now in in the current culture um Right. So on the one hand, we have this this sort of digital perfection um, of you, you point to a world of like, you know, um, TikTok filters or, um, you know, highly, highly unrealistic uh, photographs, images um, of of the body. And, and this hyperfixation I would add to this, like like a American youth culture. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and an allergy to aging far beyond what I think previous generations have. <laughs>
1: have
0: nobody likes to get older. Nobody likes to age. But seem to have a particular obsession, hence, you know, the Instagram face and 29-year-old girls uh, desperately <laughs> trying to avoid turning 30, right? Um, so we have a schizophrenic. The, the schizophrenic part of this is, of course, then we have ugliness held up. As an ideal, on the one hand, this kind of unchanging perfection that is not attainable, Um, and on the other hand, the sort of totally giving up on on the meat suit altogether, right? Um, Your your slovenly guy in the basement playing video games that you were kind of hinting at, right? Or um, you know, transgender cover girl, (laughs) right? Or or the like obese. Uh, woman in um, what do you call it workout attire that's on you know half the billboards uh, in in Manhattan, right? Um, so why do we have this schizophrenic view towards our bodies, and and what are some of the the ancient sources that you can point us to 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 prove that this this mind body problem is is uh, is not new to us?
1: Yeah, I think this is a really good example of a set of problems which viewed through the narrow lens of modernity looks like a kind of chaotic stream of random and totally insane events, but viewed through the long kind of uh, vision of the tradition and in the in view of Western history writ large, um, starts to cohere into a very central and primal thing that we've always been dealing with. And that is, as you say, our discomfort with just having bodies at all. Um, it's funny because I wrote the book before the kind of high noon of AI that we're currently experiencing with chat GPT and these ultra realistic filters. But a lot of the stuff that's in the book, it can be really, I think, meaningfully and quite easily applied to this new development that that our AI is getting so much more advanced. Like, for instance, when people uh, started using that TikTok filter that makes you look like a teenager, and a lot of folks had real it looks like crises, you know, personal emotional crises overseeing their lost youth, understanding that they would grow older and older and eventually die. And part of it is just... That we live in a culture that has never broken this news to people. You know, G.K. Chesterton famously said that before you get the good news, you have to get the bad news. In other words, before you understand that Christ has redeemed the world from sin, you have to understand that the world is in sin. And it's very easy to kind of deny this in a very comfortable, hyper technological age. But. Death is a good example of the bad news. It's like people can kind of stave this off or ignore it and if there's no cultural means of transmitting this tragic fact, this difficult truth, then it's going to come slamming down on you some other way. And so similarly, we we live in a culture that denies that there's anything other than the meat suit about us. Um that talks about human beings as if we were chemistry sets in meat sacks. And so <laughs> when it becomes clear that those chemistry sets are deficient that they're they're breaking down um then suddenly something in us re- rebels and we we have this sudden you know feeling or realization that no i'm actually i i'm not you know just this decaying decrepit flesh i'm not this you know uncomfortably male body i'm not i i'm more than that i'm i my gender identity i'm a divine spark right i'm a kind of disembodied uh being floating free of all this flesh and i should be able indeed i should have the right to do surgery and cosmetic uh, alterations and all sorts of you know digital or technological upgrades to myself to reflect this is fact and so in in some ways you're up against just this very very old sense that we are actually more than flesh and this rebellion against the death of our bodies, which we understand as a kind of loss or um, not not just part of the natural course of things, but something that that shouldn't be this way. Um, The Christian, of course, way of describing this is original sin, that there is actually something broken about the world, which is created good, which has fallen short. Um, P.G. Keenan, who's one of my uh, dear friends online and also a great writer, she wrote a, a response to my book that I really liked about age Dysphoria that like I have news for the transgender people, actually, everybody is trapped in the wrong body and it's a body that's getting older and older every day <laughs> and that we all feel very uncomfortable about this and we wish that we could we could float beyond it. Um, the reason that this is a crucial section of the book is because. it it illustrates that this is an ancient thing. It's an ancient problem. It goes back at least to the Neoplatonists who were disciples, obviously of the great philosopher Plato, but you know, it's probably older than that, that this sense that I'm something more than this flesh, but what, what, what is it? And the modern answers available are basically like you are your online avatar. You are your demon self or pup self identity. You are your pronouns, right? Um, and the ancient answer that I think is worth recovering from the tradition um, is that what you actually are is an embodied soul. This is an Aristotelian insight, but it's picked up by Thomas Aquinas and uh, the Summa Theologica, among other places. That your your body actually isn't a mistake, and your the fa- your soul, your your spirit, your identity beyond your body—that's not an illusion. You're not a meat sack, and you're also not a sort of floating, disembodied spark your flesh is the language for something that is more than flesh um and if that's true then you actually have a saner healthier relationship with yourself and with what you are even though there's still gonna be pain still gonna be tragedy i mean there's gonna be pain no matter which of these courses you you take that's the secret that nobody tells you, you know, you're going to, you're going to get old. uh, Or if you do these surgeries, there are terrible consequences. And so, so the question is really, how can I make peace with, with what I am? And I'm arguing in the book that the best way to do that is to understand yourself as a kind of language that your body is the, the letters and syllables in which the soul is written. And this isn't, something to be shucked off or or wished away. It's actually something to be lived into and, and delighted in. And all of the joy and all of the satisfaction that our modern gurus will promise you in this other route, all of that joy is actually to be found in the here and now, as you already are. You just have to live into it.
0: It seems like there's a second half to our modifications of ourselves, right? There's mm. sort of these these plastic or, or one might quite call them melding with technology, right? Um, mm. Which is really what you know, making yourself uh, in, into um, or imagining that you eke some kind of divine spark out of nothing, and that's what you're listening to, right? And shaping the clay of your body, yourself. Um, there is, of course, the genetic. Uh, side of this question, which you also get into, right? You talk mm. about um, modifications that restore function to the human body that was, is naturally there. You talk about a cochlear implant, for example, right? And and um, you're not a you're you're not a naturalist or a luddite, um, and mm. and you say it's fine. You know, this is in fact wonderful. Um, nobody would argue with the invention of, of glasses, um, except I guess Christian scientists do. But anyway,
1: um, <laughs> right? Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, but you know. You can, you can accept such modifications as glasses and cochlear implants because they restore some kind of natural function. And, and my question for you is, 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 is there really a, as sharp a line there as you're intimating? In, in other words, the line between being, for example, a genetic dwarf mm. and being short is not actually a perfectly, like the world isn't split into perfect pathologies and natural functions. Um, so something came to mind from Gattaca, Uh, the movie Gattaca on, on, on this, which is um, when they conceive of the second child in this, right? This is a world in which we can manipulate genes, Um, Mm. but it's, it asks a more complicated question, right? So when they conceive the brother, that's supposed to be the perfect child, right? Genetically, you could conceive a million times naturally and never get such a result. In other words, Mm. it's not completely fake, um, but it is unnatural. You're getting the best genes, from both your parents that perhaps in nature would require you know a million monkeys on a million typewriters <laughs> well we can we can now be shakespeare of our our own genetic code um you know how what what wisdom from from uh, the ancients and from from also from uh more modern western philosophy uh is there to address this possibility now that it it doesn't seem wholly impossible uh with regard to technology
1: yeah, I think you're absolutely right to ask that question. And I'm glad you raised it because you're right. I mean, none of these questions in the immediate, you know, when they actually boil down to this or that question, what are you going to do, you know, with this baby that you are about to have? They're never quite so cut and dry as philosophers would like them to be, or maybe as I would like them. To be, and there are always going to be edge cases and exceptions. I think I talk about this in the introduction to the book where I say, you know, there's trees and there's bushes, but there's like really large shrubs that kind of count as that would almost count as trees, and then there's, you know, sort of stunted trees that you might think of as a bush, and these things always are going to exist. Every word, every concept is going to have fuzziness around the edges. It doesn't actually mean there's no such thing as a tree or a bush we can actually identify features essential features of those two things even though we know that in the world there is kind of an infinite variety that makes it impossible to like ever rule out any one situation so you're right these things are going to become more and more concrete and then they are going to become more and more messy because this is one of Aristotle's great insights that the, you know, when things become real world human problems, they lose some of the specificity that they're able to have in the, you know, pure abstraction of mathematical or philosophical thought. Um, And so I'm, uh, you know, you bring me, you bring to my mind a controversy that unfolded recently around this guy, Nick Bostrom, who shows up in the book. Um, But this was after I wrote the book, he got into this kerfuffle, one of these old cancer culture fuffles about, you know, uh, I think he had said something sort of impolitic on a listserv back in the day. And then people started, you know, yelling at him. And he published this very weird apology letter where he said, yes, this was wrong of me to say, obviously, all races are equal, valid and beautiful and special. Um, but what what do I believe about eugenics? A kind of unprompted, like just a total, like own goal. Just here's my thoughts about eugenics. But it's obviously on his mind when he thinks about these things, because the unstated premise of that logical leap is, you know, I am currently this guy is on the forefront of science that's going to make the Gattaca reality possible. And then what, where will all our nice liberal pieties go? You know, and he sort of says, like, yeah, old eugenics was very bad. They did a lot of kind of nasty things you know, Hitler did all these terrible things um, and so did, you know, American progressives and whatever, Um, but there's a new eugenics that is good and responsible and it means, you know, talking with parents about what kind of baby they'd like to have and you sort of think, well, what, (laughs) where does that line get drawn, Nick? You know, there's just a real uh, lack of, of clarity about this and here is what I would say that the ancient sources can bring to this. It's certainly... I certainly am not going to sit here and say that I have the answer to, you know, every possible permutation of of changing human genes, changing human behavior. I can say in every case that I know the right answer. What I can say is before you undertake to change or alter something, um, you need a standard of the good, because if you're going to make a change, it's either going to be for better or for worse, or it's going to be completely neutral, in which case, why are you making the change at all? Right. So people make changes to things because they think they're improving that that thing. And before you know whether something is good for some something, you have to know what kind of thing it is. So if I'm going to make a change to a corkscrew, presumably I'm going to make it better at taking corks out of bottles, right? And I'm going to do things to that corkscrew that I would not do, say, to a horse in order to make it better at being a horse, right? Um, the reason for this is that the nature of a thing and the, the good of the thing are kind of bound up together. And so when you start to ask what kinds of alterations are good or okay to do to ourselves, for instance, is it okay to put in cochlear implants? um, The frame of reference that you use has to be, what are we? What are human beings? And if your answer is that we are embodied souls and that our nature is to seek virtue, and to do, uh, you know, to do good in the light of the cardinal virtues—courage, wisdom, prudence—right? Um, then you're going to have at least a template for understanding what kinds of questions you you might ask and, and answer. And then you would add in—I I would propose—the the crucial issue of human freedom, right? That we are also inherently beings whose choices are meaningful because we have individual personal agency. Um, those ingredients are better ingredients i would argue for for good answers to this question than the meat sack chemistry suit answer or the meat suit chemistry set answer you know which basically says well we're just a, a heap of kind of physical attributes um, it's already becoming clear that that philosophy philosophy delivers a host of very horrific alterations to children, babies, adults—you know, uh, you you name it—and so even if I don't have all the answers, what I'm proposing here is that I do have the right set of questions to to be asking. What's a human being? The answer to that question is well answered in ancient philosophy, and that is we are embodied souls whose purpose is to seek virtue. In any given question about human alteration, that I think has to be our starting point.
0: Yeah, it's a point I haven't heard anyone make as explicitly as you. That actually, in all of these conversations about human um, transformation, right, right. Uh, virtue never even gets brought up, right? right. Could we? Trans- why? Why haven't we asked? Like, can we alter our genes to make us, you know, more altruistic, right? Or, or, um, <laughs> you know, like the, these questions. It's funny that they just they just don't get raised at all in this conversation. We're only talking about um increasing our i q or or increasing our our uh, physical prowess right uh it, it just a, a a instructive and glaring uh hole in the conversation that i think as you're right to say points to um a lack of understanding of of what actually a good human constitutes
1: yeah well, that's very well put and let me just also add that a consequence of that is that in all of our conversations good bad and transhumanist about making these changes there is actually a set of values implicit in anything that anybody says it's always smuggled in that it would be better for us to be smarter better faster stronger and my my case is you know it might actually be good for us to be smarter better faster stronger i'm not against that idea but if our only idea about humanity is that strength and, and speed are our goods, are our highest virtues, um, then we're going to end up with actually not a beautiful, sophisticated, enlightened future, but the most sort of rudimentarily rudimentary tribalist, angry, brutish, short and violent kind of future because we'll have an idea about human beings that basically reduces us to, to apes. Yeah, there's
0: there's no room for protecting the weak uh, in, in such a philosophy implicit. You're, you're you're right. It's, it's like, maybe this is the tie-in between the the progressives and Nietzsche, but it's, it's, it's an interesting one. Um, Mm. And I had never thought about it quite that way, even after reading it. So hopefully uh, people will listen to the many interviews that you've given about this book and for additional, (laughs) (laughs) for additional wisdom is contained in it. The next, the next uh, crisis that you move into um which which i think is again this is all like tied together and it is nicely tied to- together in the book as well but the, the crisis of meaning right? right um in in which you bring in the the mimetic impulse of humanity uh and and whether we are copying anything higher mm. um it, or if we if are, are copying each other we sort of an endless circle of, of reflecting you know nothing back to each other right um and here you—it's in this in this crisis uh, section that you discuss, I think, primarily art. Um, and so th- there are some there's some uh, interesting things you say here about art uh, and and the subjectivity. Um, among them, that that the people who, for example, um, you know, tape a banana to to the wall, right, um, and declare the meaninglessness of art and and consequently of life. Um, have no no uh, no basis on which to demand representation for all of their preferred minorities. If art is meaningless, uh, why why does the little black girl need to see herself in the Little Mermaid? Um, well, it's right. A, it's a good why question. indeed. Um, so why don't you you uh, lay out some of the arguments that you've made and, and where you got them from um, about the the. Um, meaning inherent or, or why art does require meaning? Because I think these two questions, as you put them together, the question of meaning in life is is kind of, a, we're asking the same question when we think about whether art requires a meaning.
1: Yeah, I, I'm i glad that you think these are all one crisis because it might have been Emily, you mentioned Emily Jashinsky, it might have been Emily who said to me, these are basically all one crisis. And I think that's true. I think that the book unfolds naturally along with my own train of thought. And that's because really, you know, everything, all of these things are interconnected. It's one one benefit of, of thinking in terms of the tradition rather than in terms of the news cycle. And this chapter, The Crisis of Meaning, was the chapter that most surprised me. You know, when you write a book, some chapters basically come out how you expect, some chapters totally surprise you with the kind of logic inherent in their ideas. And this is the, this was the one that I thought, wow, it's sort of interesting that I've ended up talking about the culture wars in my section on, um, you know, human meaning, but actually they're connected by this ancient idea of mimesis, uh, which is this idea that art and even human activity sort of reflects the world back at itself. Um, And, you know, Aristotle, says that mankind is the most imitative of the animals. He is uh, mimetic That That is, wherever we go, we see people sort of reacting to one another in these mirror kind of ways. Um, Kids in preschool learn by repeating things that are said, to them. Or even on the playground, they might mimic one another, or make fun of each other, or they might put on little mini plays and play pretend. And these are all ways of basically holding a mirror up to the world and, and to one another. And art, as it's traditionally understood, does this. And one of the things that I argue in the book is that not realizing this about art is, is a way that both conservatives and leftists get the culture wars kind of wrong. Like we don't always understand what we're doing in the culture wars, which we've been fighting now for decades, right? We've been fighting over what kind of art should be in schools, what kind of books should be read, what kind of movies and, and, and so on and so forth. Um and typically this sort of debate, this war, is represented as The left just wants no holds barred. Anything goes, you know, depict sex, violence, whatever, and just let a thousand flowers bloom. And the right is always shaking its finger and scolding and saying, no, you need to like only show sanitized, prettified depictions of of the world. But actually, if you look at what people are really fighting about right now. Um, they're not fighting that way at all. The the left is extremely censorious about art and, and has very definite views about what should and should not be shown. They're just not the same views that as conservatives have. I mean, this whole thing about representation is a great example. There must be in movies, a certain number of LGBTQIA plus people. In fact, the more, the better. And the whiter your movie is, the worse it is. I mean, these are moral claims about how you depict the world because one of the left's greatest strengths is they understand that Art has power to mold the intellect in some ways I've never quite thought about it before, but this is a way of answering your question about, you know, do people intuitively have a sense of reality? Uh, Yes, they do. They're born with it. But people also can have their sense of reality shaped by the way they see the world depicted because this sort of representational impulse is so deep within us. And, and so the left wants to seize control of the means of artistic production precisely in order to shape people's understanding of the world so that it looks like their understanding. Um, the, the right sort of wants to do that, too. And and I think they're, we're getting wiser about this. What we really want is art that displays the world as it is in reality. I think too often we represent our political program as there shouldn't be any depictions of like violence and sex. They shouldn't be explicit. And really what we're saying is we shouldn't be lying about violence and sex. We shouldn't be depicting promiscuous sex as if it's sort of fun and cost free. We shouldn't be, you know, showing children these disturbing images before they're ready to fully process the truth of them rather than treat them simply as, you know, symbols on a screen. um and and this is a very reasonable, in fact, you know, ancient to request to make of artists that they not like distort and deform people's vision of reality. Um but the problem, of course, is that we we're up against a kind of crazy ascendant left that wants its distorted crazy vision of reality on every TV screen in every home. And so it's very easy on the right to just sort of react against that and say, no, no, no. You know, basically turn, shut it all off, like cancel every possible streaming service. And and really what we need to be doing is saying, no, we, we actually have better art to make, truer art. I mean, this is one reason why I love, for instance, what The Daily Wire does is they actually go out there and make stuff that depicts the world uh, as they see it. And I, I believe they see it more truly. And and so this sort of thing, you know, ultimately, our question is always what is behind our depictions? What are we depicting? Are we depicting a kind of imaginary fantasy that we're trying to shove people into uh, against their will? Or are we depicting the world in the fullness of itself as it is, um, because we believe in truth and, and reality? That's the question of meaning.
0: Yeah. And here I hear echoes of that guy who's not your father, <laughs> uh, a- Andrew Clavin, uh, yeah. who, who said on this um on this podcast in relation to his own book about, uh, poetry that, um, essentially that the right is often too focused on creating role models in art rather than reflecting the real. And I think that, that, um, you, you've clarified uh, that admirably in this, this book, and I think you're, you're completely right. I mean, I, I think there has to be a fight, for example, to depict the realities of sex in art, um, rather than in a morally didactic way to, for example, depict how it can go wrong, right? Like that—that that is in itself a, a depiction of tr- a truth about sex in a way uh, that I think is more meaningful than a than, uh, kind of school marmish disconnection from from the culture. Um, but there's an, there's another axis, I think, within this art that you point to that I think the right often gets wrong. I agree with you that the right often gets wrong. And that's representation versus realism, mm. um, right? So you, you write... Uh, about how poetry, for example, is is trying to re- better represent an image or emotion by using words almost as a medium, right? Mm. Um, and that that actually we might I think your example is is um, a poem about Anne Boleyn, right? Um, and and you know if, if he had merely said uh, if this poem had merely described uh, oh I saw a pretty girl at the party um, that, that that I couldn't have uh, because she she was chosen by the king um, that that would not convey uh, what he does through words and metaphor um i guess here my question is what do you think about more abstract forms of art um because i was in the moma yesterday and i realized that i had been a stupid and bullheaded conservative in refusing to go to moma right I, i uh and but but not entirely in the sense that it seemed to me that there was some crucial turning point sometime in the 1970s where you really get this sort of aggressive meaninglessness. Whereas yes. in earlier forms of even modern art, abstraction itself is not the enemy. And I feel like too often, you hear conservatives say like, oh, like modern art is, you know, it's it's BS, because there's too much abstraction. And therefore, there can't be meaning. I mean, where do you fall on, on that, that debate? Do you need something realistic, or, or at least tending towards realistic to, to reflect something true? Um, or can we sometimes reflect something that is true better through something that is representational or abstract and and not realistic?
1: Well, yeah, it definitely depends on what you mean by truth and reality, right? And this is a, one place where art, I think, can get stuff across that nothing else can. That's part of the case that I make for art in the book. If you like, uh, and you mentioned that um, that Wyatt poem about and Anne, Anne Boleyn. It's like this little capsule of things that have no expression in language any other way, because you can't actually describe them in sort of physical, scientific terms. And so we have this idea that we really inherit from the scientific revolution, that the only way of telling a truth is to say physical facts, right? And art is kind of the great refutation of that attitude because it conveys things that can't be charted anywhere on a brain scan that can't be neatly boiled down to the definitions of individual words and yet in undeniably are are real our loves our desires our passions right these these things exist for us and they are captured in art as as nothing else can so i mean the other day on twitter i went on this sort of like tongue-in-cheek rant about uh andy Grammer's song honey i'm good it's one of my favorite modern songs, and it's about not sleeping with a girl at the bar because you're married or in a committed relationship or something. Um, and that's the the song. Honey, I'm good. Is like you, you know you you're really great, and I would like to go home with you, but I'm I'm not going to. Um, And I was arguing only sort of facetiously that this is like a modern masterpiece because it does something for fidelity that no conservative argument or facts or figures or anything, nothing else could do that. Only this song, which is kind of which is like fun and sexy and adventurous, um, can portray Fidelity, marital fidelity as what it actually is, which is one of the chief joys of life that it has this thrill to it that is above anything you'll get out of a one night stand. And that's actually one of the hardest things to do in art, is to get across the fact that like virtue is an adventure. But that's also one of the only things that only art can do. So now you have this question, right, like, obviously, in the second half of the 20th century something happens that makes people feel that the only way they can get across what's going on for them uh, is to scramble the pre-existing forms and to put things onto canvas or onto paper that have no real relationship to the forms and and order that we experience in, in everyday life. And it's not impossible to me that for some of that to to work um, i i would say though that the thing where you're trying to get away from form altogether which is what i understand by like true high abstraction just like never put, put anything in front of the eyes that can be neatly interpreted as having some kind of form i i think that is a fool's errand i think living in a purely abstract world i mean the analog for this in music would be pure a tonality just no frame of reference for any one note as related to any other. Um, Ultimately, that is going to destroy the possibility of meaning altogether. I do think there's forms of abstraction that can kind of riff on or uh, show moments of kind of breakdown, chaos, despair. I mean, that's what abstraction should do. And it's at its best, I think, is to portray and convey what it means when meaning falls apart and breaks down. But as such abstraction for me is always parasitic upon formalism. So if you're going to break the traditional metrical forms in poetry, for instance, um, there's no reason for me to care except because those forms exist and they convey certain meanings to me. And so when you break them, I think, oh, something is being portrayed to me about you know, an exception to the rule or a breakdown of meaning or something. I mean, there's some kind of experience that I'm supposed to have that basically communicates the the things falling apart. And that's definitely a great use for abstraction. I just think that this whole idea that abstraction in itself is going to be like a standalone artistic movement. The reason that that has never really carried favor with the public is because it's, it's actually a, a contradiction in terms. It's like saying, I want to uh, communicate something to you without any form of communication. Like it just doesn't, it, it's a, it's, it's a sort of logical contradiction.
0: Interesting. I mean, I have to think about that one hmm. um, as, as with many things, uh, but, but I want to move on to the next uh, the next crisis that you identify. In. And, and hmm. again, all of these things underlie each other, right? This is the, the crisis of religion. And, um, hmm. And you talk about our the role that science has taken on um, more akin to priests, right? That science has busted beyond uh, the empirical questions and its limitations uh, and to be the only source of of truth. Um, and and this has changed discourse uh, into kind of an infuriating game. And in, I, I think you use the word game as well, um, kind of positioning your positive commitments as scientific or objective truth. Um, Maybe, maybe you can call it a set of game of thrones as a game of axioms, right? (laughs) Um, And, and and this seems to constitute our, our very frustrating politics and philosophy. Uh, Is this just life after the death of God? In other words, um, is there a way, a way out to actually posit something um, in, in this game or uh, does it require a a full fledged religious revival? In other words, is <laughs> it, the only way out of of uh, the sort of uh, the death of God, right? Uh, and then, therefore, death of of all meaning, um, is is the only way out? Religious revival, or are we going to have to, in some self aware way, posit something?
1: Hmm, yeah, is it a change of the heart that's needed or a kind of cognitive or some sort of you know argument or or I mean here's the first thing I would say the reason that science has become a kind of religion is because as you say, it's it sort of billowed out to lay claim to every form of truth. nothing is true if it's not scientifically true and likewise some things that are not scientifically true are are flatly not true. And part of the problem with this is that even, science operates using tools that science itself has not proven. Axioms, first principles, um, and good philosophers of science know this. They, They don't come from scientific observation. They inform scientific observation. So if I, you know, say I know that the Earth revolves around the sun and not the other way around. You say, well, how do you know that? You say, well, because like you can look through a telescope and you can see certain things. Even when you start to say those things, there's a whole list of a whole laundry list of premises that science didn't demonstrate. It just takes for granted. Like, for instance, that, you know, the the way the angle of incidence of of light at your eye is, you know, indicative of something about the distance that can be refracted and so forth. I mean, without getting into sort of minutia on this, we we operate, even when we do science, we operate with sort of extra scientific ideas. I would propose that the only kinds of truths that we can actually... Sort of collectively agree on and say these are absolute they don't depend on your kind of standpoint within anyone those truths are going to be more than material more than physical that we're going to be talking about things like justice uh love virtue all the stuff that we've been talking about today um, which are beyond mere matter and even when we try to talk about mere matter one of the reasons why we've gotten so crazy about it is because we actually have to have something that is not material in order to, to talk about that. So we're going to have to drop this charade that we, only, we can get by on just atoms bouncing around in a void. I just don't think that's working for us. I don't think it coheres intellectually. And it ends us up in this position where we've just staked out whatever little ground we want to claim within the chaos of nature and said, you know, this is truth. And that's actually just what, what paganism is. That's the old kind of argument against paganism is that it's really just picking a particular force of nature or a political force or a person, a king, um, and banking on that and saying like, that's, that's I'm betting on this horse and this is going to kind of rise up and eclipse and swallow up all other realities. But it never quite works because nature, in order to cohere, needs something from outside of, of nature. So you know, is it a religious revival when people begin to believe in more than matter? Um, I mean, really, that's the how basic these, this kind of question is. Like, y- yes, I do think there has to be a change of, of the heart that, that kind of leads us there. But I also think that that change of the heart is in some ways already occurring. And then, people don't find it satisfying to think of themselves as uh, atoms in a void or as chemistry sets in meat sacks or, or whatever, um, this this actually leads us into despair. And we know that it doesn't work. And we know that all the most important parts of our experience don't live in this purely material domain. Um, and so really what I say in the book is what you really need is not a confession, but a surrender. What we really need is to regain a certain amount of confidence In our own felt sense that there is more to life than stuff. Um, And and that is maybe, if anything, it's a political change. It's people getting the confidence to say in the teeth of whatever elite scolding they may face. No, actually, like the science, capital T, capital S, is not all there is. And I, I won't worship at its altar.
0: Yeah, the, the, the end point of the alternative is this famous story of the university student, you know, um, proclaiming his nihilism and setting himself on fire. Uh, mm-hmm. So, as, as you say, um, all of this has contemporary political meaning. I would, I would even say it has very sharp, like, political meaning. And, and you blend those things very well in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're interchangeably going back and forth between Plato and Aristotle and the questions that they confront um, and our modern political crises right um and so this this all brings us to the last question which is the crisis of the regime Mm -hmm. right um you have you have quite a bit of of uh of of hope for us i think um (laughs) on on the crisis of a regime uh and and of of the western western tradition's ability to regenerate itself after the destruction of nations um but i i want to ask you something that has about something that has been bothering me as well right um you and and that's that's the the mere materialism that uh, springs. I mean, Marx is every bit part of the Western tradition, right? Um, and and so the the question then, and I think you you quote Whitaker Chambers in a letter uh, to William F. Buckley, writing essentially that communism springs from the capitals of the West. In other words, it's not because of this um, deviation from man's history in Russia, the Bolshevik Revolution, but that. Um, Russia sim- simply responded earlier uh, than than for any variety of, of number of historical reasons to uh, something that that is being born across the West uh, is in some sense the child of the earlier Western tradition, even if if bastardized, right? So is so I guess the question I want to ask you here is: Is the West now the trans flag, um, hmm. and and will we become an evil empire?
1: The GAE, right? The Global American Empire, which mm-hmm. just exports that uh, aesthetic atrocity. It was uh, the trans flag. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really smart sort of objection to anybody that would want to say the West is worth saving. Is right? like the West. That's what the West is. What got us into this mess, right? Um, I I would say this you're right marx is a westerner he's operating in a western mode of thought and critique and there are good arguments such as that made by tom holland in dominion that like really what he's doing is just developing like a christian ethic to its extremes without any of the christian metaphysics that have made christian ethics bearable historically right i mean Christian ethics only works because it's nested within its metaphysics. And when you take that metaphysics away and then push all the moral claims to their extremes, like blessed are the poor and therefore we should eat the rich, right? It becomes this actually horrific kind of hellish contortion of itself. Um, so, you know, I, I might quibble and say that Marxism is like a perversion of, of Western thought, but even so, it's a perversion that arose for discernible identifiable reasons. And so I, I would, uh, take the point you know like that there is a lot of what we're up against a lot of what we're facing um is is uniquely western even in its corruption and its problems and its excesses but it's not a foregone conclusion i would suggest that that's the end of the story that that's the stopping point i actually think that we are at the end the terminus of something with the kind of extremities of, of materialism um and and that what we're really seeing is something that began with the scientific revolution that the world when the world you know began to look newly intelligible as a series of laws predictable laws um it became very easy to fall victim to a kind of idolatry which says and those laws therefore just are the reality of things it's all just kind of billiard balls bouncing in space and yeah. you can chart a logical progression to, you know, the end point of that is like drag Queen Story Hour and the the Global American Empire. But the other thing that's true is in actual science, like real, even as we speak, in real life science, um the unsustainability of materialism is also becoming clear because it was always a, a fallacy, right? To say that there's no role for the human mind in science. It's just kind of objective and it happens outside of our consciousness. You know, everything that we experience is mediated through our consciousness. And that means that mind has a role to play in science just as much as anything else. And, and so the fact that like quantum physics is currently beating its head against exactly this problem, Um, and that actually the shadow of God is looming in all these sort of scientific ways suggests that there may actually be a revival kind of coming down the pike in the Western tradition, just as there we're currently facing a kind of low point or a trough in, in Western wisdom. And the last thing I would say is if that revival is to come for us, it will come out of a recovery of old truths that we've been passing down and and gnawing on and wrestling with since Athens and Jerusalem. It's not going to come from some kind of like extraneous, extrinsic, just like, oh, let's do something else. Let's scrap Socrates and Plato because they got us in this mess. I mean, you can make that argument about anybody. You can always trace the roots of dysfunction back to some some good thing because the world has fallen and things fall apart. But we're not going to get Back, we're not going to recover any kind of sanity by simply jettisoning the tradition all together. What we're going to have to do is dig into our roots, find out where we went wrong, and sort of restore some of the old truths that we lost while uncovering some of these new. Scientific truth. That's why it's important to deal with the Western tradition at all. That's you know why I wrote the book. In some senses, it's not that like there aren't problems with all of these uh, ideas. It's not that hum- human life is ever going to be kind of neatly solved. But the the thing that's going to get us out of this mess is the ancient verities. It's not some random you know novelty that we're going to invent from elsewhere. Our our help comes from within.
0: That would be a nice. Way to to wrap this up, but for the fact that I have uh, one more question for you. That's that uh, maybe doesn't follow quite uh, the, the structure of your book, but but you touch on at different points throughout it, and something that's very close to my heart in terms of what I find important in life, um, in a real way, and and that is the dilution or belittling of friendship and love. Mm. Um. In, in the context of the regime, the formulation of this might be something about, you know, the large republic and and uh, civic friendship and the difficulty of maintaining civic friendship in a large republic. Uh, but but there's also a, a sort of personal or individual version of this. Right. Um, how how to remain, how to keep friendship and love um, meaningful and by which we point out exclusionary. Mm-hmm. Um in in an age of sort of ubiquitous social media in other words if everyone knows everything about anyone what is friendship or love
1: hmm i mean this is a really important it's where the book ends and it is where sort of my work is going to go i think as the years roll on is is i've become kind of obsessed with this fact and maybe you can tell me if there's a language you know of that that fixes this problem but in english I've become obsessed with the fact that there's not a good word for somebody that you like and have a great relationship with, and actually you're totally satisfied with your relationship with this, this person. There's a lot of mutual satisfaction, um, but they but they're not your friend. That is to say, you don't count them among the people to whom you might turn with problems that you you wouldn't you know think of them immediately to share intimate details of your life. And you know we have these words like colleague or um, associate or acquaintance, and they all feel kind of cold or insulting. If you called somebody your colleague or your acquaintance, uh, they would feel like they'd been somehow downgraded in your estimation. Um, But what that means is that we have to expand our word friend out to everybody. And, you know, friendship, since friendship is a kind of love, we have to be constantly saying that we love everybody um, with the result that we don't have a good definition or understanding of of what real friendship is. Um, Philia in the ancient Greek sense, that is friendship, love, um, this desiring of the good and love of the good in the other person and for the other person in and of itself um, is a very rare, precious thing. It's also the stuff of life. It's the kind of way that we uh, connect to one another, the way that we build political communities. And so I, I think first and foremost, the very first thing has to be like thinking smaller, um, and thinking smaller in terms of the size of your circle of friends, um, but also therefore, you know, in terms of the size of your political communities. Yes, we're a big nation, but we actually operate according to these little platoons, these neighborhoods, you know, um, that are not conducted online that actually have, you know, to confront real life, human sized problems. Um, Aristotle's image for this, which I still think is the best, uh, is comes in the course of his arguing against plato about communism about the sort of sharing of all property in in common and he says if you take a little bit of wine and you dilute it in a big jug of water you don't get a big jug of wine you get a big jug of water with an imperceptible like sort of wine splash in it uh, in just the same way, if you take your love and you just spread it around to "quote unquote" the world, you know I love the world, or I, you know, if you if you try to save the world, if you're trying to love the world, um, you won't actually get more love; you'll get less. And so, the way to really do friendship, the way to really do politics, the way to really do love, um, is to enter into the human-sized space of face-to-face interaction. That's where love lives if anybody says i have i love god but he loves not his neighbor he is a liar why because god for us can very easily become this kind of gelatinous abstraction and we're very capable uh, believe me i know we're very capable of saying like oh i love god i'm a servant of god you know and then we go out into the world and we do and say the most atrocious things sometimes in the name of that sort of very idea because we haven't drawn that crucial Christian connection between love of God and love of neighbor that's why that connection is there it's to say actually all your virtue all your salvation is bound up in this fleshly human sized thing that you are in conversation in communion with other human beings um, and that's one reason why the digital revolution has been so unsettling but it, it also means that the key to kind of gaining a little bit more mastery over our technology is in rerouting ourselves in the here and now in what they call meat space, a face-to-face person-to-person interaction, which is the root of all real love.
0: Well, with that, Spencer Clavin, thank you so much for for joining us on High Noon today. Um, Spencer is the author of How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises, which I highly, highly recommend that you read, um, along with his work over at American Mind at the Claremont Institute. He has a new podcast coming out to uh, succeed uh, young heretics, also on the heritage of the West over at Daily Wire. Um, And and I would describe him, uh, I think, as uh, a one-man library of Alexandria for... (laughs) A bereft age,
1: <laughs> uh, but yeah. don't set me on fire. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so, so thank you so much, Spencer, for for coming on. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you, Inez. This was wonderful. Really appreciate it.
0: And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.